Welcome to the Halloween edition of In the Know. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. <laughs> it's time for In the Know with the fine folks at Nueces County AgriLife Extension, your source for great information and education in your home county. Now sit back and relax and enjoy. Here's your host, Kevin Gibbs and Norma Munoz. Thanks for joining us on In the Know. Today, our guest is Jonathan Warner, who is the Alligator Program Leader with Texas Parks and Wildlife. Welcome, Jonathan. It's great to have you this morning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Norma. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, great to be with you guys this morning. Just real quick, a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm originally from the Midwest, was was born and raised in, in Illinois, and uh, almost all of my family is still up there. Um, I got involved at a very young age um, in science and in, in uh, wildlife-related issues. G grew up hunting and fishing, but was always fascinated with reptiles and amphibians. And as a result, kind of followed that path uh, into wildlife biology in college, and uh, very long story short, uh, after I finished college in Illinois, um, ended up in South Africa for almost a decade and um, did a uh, master's degree over there on an endangered species of, of viper along the uh, east coast of South Africa. And then from there kind of fell in backwards to a big uh, Nile crocodile research project, um, which uh, did my doctoral work on that. That was kind of my introduction to the the crocodilian world and um, was was back in the States and working when uh, this job with TPWD opened up and, and was exactly along the lines of, of what I had uh, been looking for in, in a job and in a career and, and um, uh, hired on here about four and a half years ago. Uh, I'm very thankful for that. That's amazing. Um, I can't believe you've been to South Africa and seen Nile crocodiles and all that. Can you tell us a little bit about Texas Parks and Wildlife? I'm sure most people have a basic understanding, but go ahead and tell us a little bit more about it. Yes, yeah, so Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, our mission is to manage and conserve the natural and cultural resources of Texas uh, and to provide hunting, fishing, and outdoor recreation opportunities for the use and enjoyment of present and future generations. Uh, TPWD is a big agency. Uh, if you spend any amount of time outside hunting or fishing or at a state park, you've probably bumped into one of us, um, either in the wildlife division or inland fisheries or uh, one of our game wardens with law enforcement, uh, widespread across the whole state. And uh, obviously our, our mission is a big one, but we have a, uh, a lot of staff, we're a big agency, and um, yeah, fingers in a lot of different pies when it comes to uh, providing things like outdoor recreation, whether that's hunting, whether that's fishing, photography, uh, getting out and hiking in our state parks. Um, that's why we exist is, is for folks to be able to participate in that. Good information. Absolutely. Great information. I think probably most people just associate Texas parks and wildlife with game wardens and don't realize how much more there is to um, that agency and how much y'all do. So that's great information, John. Thank you. So I know we're talking about alligators this morning, right? So um, can you tell us a little bit about the American alligator? Sure. So the American alligator, um, very iconic North American animal, a uh, very interesting history as far as the conservation management um, and how that's um, been tied into 
state and federal agencies and landowners that have alligator habitat, and we can get into that uh, in a little bit here. But uh, in the uh, crocodilian world, of which there's 26 or so species, um, there's only two species of alligator, the American alligator, which we're talking about this morning, and then a critically uh, endangered population of Chinese alligators in China, obviously. Um, and so American alligators, uh, as I said, very iconic animal, important animal for our aquatic ecosystems in Texas. Um, and also uh, one thing that, that maybe the general public doesn't always uh, know or associate uh, with alligators is is there's a very extensive commercial uh, alligator industry in the United States uh, of which TPWD oversees in Texas um, that involves alligator farming and export of hides for products made out of those hides and, and for meat as well. Um, so from the commercial side of things, um, apart from uh, recreation and and all that the thing all those excuse me all that entails with alligators. Um, is a big part of what we do. Uh, but again, an animal that, that uh, you know, often is linked, at least in people's minds, to uh, the age of the dinosaurs and, and kind of seen as this ancient animal and, and in some cases maybe, um, you know, unnecessarily feared. Um, their natural disposition is, is not aggressive. They're very docile animals and prefer not to be disturbed by people. Um, yeah, in, anyway, just as, as far as, as uh, alligators themselves, uh, instantly recognizable for, for most people. Um, unfortunately, you know, sometimes things pop up in the news that are, are maybe misguided or sensationalized. Um, but uh, again, just a very iconic North American animal um, and one that everybody should be proud um, to live alongside with in the southern United States. Well, and that's interesting because I didn't realize that there was only two uh species i guess of alligators you don't really i think that's probably something not a lot of us actually think about or actually know so um that was that was really interesting to me so can you explain how alligators are different from alleg uh from crocodiles sure so they're uh, as i mentioned they're they're different species um and along with that go some uh morphological differences and ecological differences uh most obviously uh, and superficially uh, alligators generally have a, a u-shaped jaw they almost look like they have an overbite where crocodiles kind of have a, a, a more narrow v-shaped snout uh, you can also see uh, teeth on the bottom jaw protruding uh, in crocodiles where you, you can't uh, notice that uh, in alligators. Uh, alligators um, do not have salt glands, uh, unlike crocodiles, so they're not as tolerant to uh, saline conditions. They can forage in, in brackish waters um, for short periods of time, but are, are very reliant on freshwater sources uh, to do all the things they do. Um, unlike crocodiles, though, they're they're much more tolerant of colder weather, and that's why we, uh, out of out of um, all the continents uh, that that have crocodilians, primarily they're tropical, subtropical. Uh, but obviously, here in the United States, you know, we get we get alligators as far north as North Carolina, so more tolerant to colder temperatures, but not salt compared to crocodiles. So that explains why we see them in our rivers and, and places that most people wouldn't think there would be alligators. So that brings us to the next question. Can you talk a little bit about where you might find alligators in Texas? Yes, yeah, so Texas as a state um, is certainly 
in most people's minds, you know, associated with a, a variety of of things when it comes to um, Texas as a as a, a recognized brand, if, if you will, in the United States. But it's it's not normally a state when it comes to wildlife, when it comes to alligators, that people necessarily associate Texas with having alligators. And, and actually, the opposite is true. Um, out of all of the states that have alligators uh, in the U.S., uh, Texas is third. We have the third highest population behind Louisiana and Florida. And um, uh, very cryptic animals, animals that are hard to survey, so we don't don't have an exact number, but uh, upwards of potentially half a million alligators we have in Texas, um, primarily South Texas, uh, Southeast Texas, uh, where I'm sitting right now here in the marsh, uh, is where our highest densities are. Uh, but also have plenty of alligators in East Texas, all the way up to Texarkana, uh, and even as far west as, as the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, so over have been formally documented in over 100 counties in the state, uh, which again, maybe is something that even Texas residents uh, don't always think about or, or maybe haven't realized. We're just not normally associated um, with having big alligator populations, say like a place like a Louisiana or a Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about their habitat and their distribution? Yes, so they they uh, occupy a uh, pretty good variety of habitats, primarily freshwater ecosystems, including uh, coastal marsh, uh, our lakes, bayous, rivers, artificial impoundments, even uh, primarily in the southern, southeastern, and eastern portion uh, of Texas. Um, they obviously are uh, highly uh, adapted to and, and reliant on water through all uh, phases of their life history. Uh, it's important uh, for uh, mothers that are nesting. It's uh, for shallow fresh water is important for nursery areas. Uh, alligators breed in, in deeper open water. And then obviously feed uh, in water as well on a, on a variety of aquatic prey, uh, fish, invertebrates, uh, crayfish. Um, and then as they become larger adults, um, will uh, transition to, to foraging at the water's edge, um, will occasionally take animals as big as white-tailed deer or feral hogs. Um, but water, very important, and uh, it's a lot of, especially here, southeast, southeast portion of the state, uh, it's, uh, it's a good bet to see if you see a body of water, it's, it's safe to assume that there's a, a good chance an alligator is going to be in there. So, so it's the location of water that, that makes a difference of where they're distributed. That explains why we don't have them in places like West Texas and, and other parts of the state. Um, yeah, water in within the suitable temperature range, uh, water is a, a critical um, habitat component. Uh, the reasons we don't see them in, say, uh, the Panhandle or the Trans-Pecos is um, they're intolerant of colder temperatures, especially in the winter. Um, they can tolerate very short freezes, uh, but those harsher arid areas that that experience colder winters uh, aren't suitable for um, um, for alligator feeding and nesting and mating. And that's that's the reason why, um, combined with their historical biogeography, that we don't see them um, in desert environments or or places like uh, West Texas, like you just mentioned. So, did we have alligator die-off with uh, winter storm Uri last year? How did they respond to the, the extended cold spell that we had? Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin, and actually one that, that we uh, have gotten a lot of since that, that obviously very extreme uh, weather event. Uh, we did not observe um, 
any mortalities uh, at all, actually. Certainly nothing widespread like we saw uh, with some of our bat colonies and some of our um, uh, sea trout uh, fisheries along the coast. Uh, as I mentioned, in, in very short uh, time spans, they can, they can tolerate extreme cold. Um, and so what they'll do is they, they enter a state of what we call brumation, where they essentially go into torpor and they'll slow their metabolism down and their heart rate down to just a couple beats a minute um, and basically literally ride out the storm. Um, there were pictures going around after that uh, winter storm Uri of a population in southern Oklahoma, um, which uh, were certainly colder than, than the, the temperatures we experienced down here. In extreme southeast Texas, where uh, the entire water body was frozen over, and then you would just see the alligator snout um, um, that the ice had frozen around, and that's that's called an icing mechanism. Like I said, they will put themselves into a, a an extremely uh, slow metabolic state, um, and uh, yeah, can't go on for months like that. But but certainly on the um, you know, period of, of hours to days, they can they can ride out those extreme events and, and have adapted over time um, to some of those extreme conditions um, across their range in North America. Very cool. Yeah, totally fascinating. So you've talked to us a little bit about um, Texas being like number three in um, population of alligators and having about, you know, half a million with documented in um, 100 counties. Can you talk to us a little bit about what role um, Texas Parks and Wildlife plays in alligator management? Yeah, I sure can. So just to to go back real quick to the, the history of the species in North America, by the, the 1850s, um, products made from, from alligator leather, alligator hide uh, were becoming popular. Um, which led to overhunting, and um, as technology improved into the 1900s, um, boats became available where people could access interior marsh. Um, that further led to the decline of the species across much of its range. Um, essentially, commercial overexploitation, uh, hunting for their hides, um, led to a, a, a set of of um, yeah, but, but essentially by the by the 1960s, um, they were not doing well across the United States, and by 1973, were listed as endangered on the Endangered Species Act. Um, after that happened, that's where uh, state agencies like Texas Parks and Wildlife stepped in, um, along with uh, our federal partners, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Survey Service, to really um, begin intensive management um, and regulation of hunting. Um, those initiatives, along with the, the buy-in of, of landowners that had uh, alligator habitat and were, were good stewards of the land, um, really led to a remarkable recovery um, and certainly one of the uh, greatest uh, stories of wildlife conservation in North America. Uh, to the extent by 1987, they were, they were deemed fully recovered. Um, now, that said, uh, uh, state and federal agencies still tightly regulate legal trade in American alligators and their products. A uh, big part of that is to protect other endangered crocodilians in, in other countries uh, in the world that look similar to alligators and, and would be more susceptible to um, illegal smuggling and, and pet trade and, and things like that. 
Um, and so Texas Parks and Wildlife, our role in, in alligator management, uh, primarily we uh, regulate and oversee alligator hunting in Texas, of which we have a limited spring season and a traditional more extensive uh, fall season that just wrapped up here at the end of September. Um, so we help landowners attain the permits they need and um, uh, provide survey data, monitor population trends. Um, we fly nest counts to get an idea of what our recruitment levels are like, what, what nesting's looking like from year to year, which helps us determine how many uh, permits and which type of permits to get out, give out. Uh, that's a big part of it. Um, another significant um, role that TPWD plays as far as the uh, interface between alligators and people in Texas is we uh, oversee the nuisance control program. So we have a number, number of individuals across the state uh, that are uh, trained to deal with nuisance alligators. And obviously there's a multitude of scenarios of, of which an alligator may or may not be a nuisance, but um, if we need to go and, and remove an animal that's uh, become aggressive or has been fed by people, um, we, we uh, have people in our, our capacity that will do that, uh, that nuisance program. Um, just because you know much of the state is 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 warm year round that runs uh, 24 7 365 days a year um, the, I'd say that the third leg uh, so to speak of the program um, I mentioned it earlier but the commercial side of of alligator farming um, we have several alligator farms in Texas that uh, raise hatchlings in captivity for the hide and meat market uh, that's done sustainably from uh, collection of wild alligator eggs from wild nests. And so all of the permitting, um, all of the um, necessary uh, support from the department for that farming operation and what they need for their, uh, their tags to export those animals, that all runs through us. And so that's another, um, uh, another big part of it and a very important part of it for alligator conservation. And uh, we talked a little bit about the history uh, but in order for uh, alligators to continue to be successful and people be able to use them sustainably, uh, it's important that we do that in, in a way that's uh, responsible to the species, uh, whether that's keeping uh, harvest numbers at a, at a certain rate during the, the fall season or whether it's, it's limiting egg collection on, on uh, certain private lands. We take all that into account, obviously, with the end goal being uh, to continue to have this great sustainable resource in the state of Texas that um, our recreators, whether that's uh, ecotourism or hunting, um, can continue to, to use and enjoy alligators um, for hopefully many, many years to come. This is also fascinating, Jonathan. I'm, I'm learning so much this morning. Uh, right now, we need to take a short break. Uh, so here's a, a message from our BLT agents. So we'll be right back with our guest, Jonathan Warner. in the know with Birding for Texans. We are here with the Regional Program Specialist, Brenda Anderson. Welcome, Brenda. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, thanks for having me, first of all. So um, my name is Brenda Anderson. I'm the Regional Project Specialist in the Southeast region of Texas for Better Living for Texans. I've been in this role for about two years. And prior to that, I was actually a Better Living for Texans educator in Victoria County for about eight years. 
that's amazing. What is Better Living for Texans? Oh, okay. Well, Better Living for Texans is a statewide program that was started in 1995. It provides free nutrition education to underserved and low-income audiences through um, series programs that cover things like general nutrition, physical activity, gardening, food resource management, and food safety. Um, the program is committed to providing participants with research-based information in a welcoming atmosphere and to serving communities across Texas through our dedication and leadership of our educators. And you can learn a little bit about BLT by knowing our vision and mission statement. So the vision of Better Living for Texans is creating opportunities, changing lives. And our mission statement is, we provide research and evidence-based nutrition, health, and wellness knowledge to empower individuals, families, and communities to make positive changes for healthier lives. And I feel like Better Living for Texans does have the opportunity to change people's lives and make a positive difference through the information that the program provides in Texas communities. Who does the program reach? Um, Better Living for Texans targets low resource audiences in 211 of the 254 counties of Texas. We serve individuals who are either receiving or eligible for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits, or SNAP, as well as schools and communities around schools where at least 50% of the students receive or are eligible for free or reduced school meals. How is the Berlin for Texans program funded? Funding for Better Living for Texans comes initially from a federal grant from the USDA's Food and Nutrition Service who then distribute funds to the states um, to provide nutrition education. So here in Texas, Health and Human Services Commission receives that funding from USDA, and then they identify the agencies who they would like to implement the SNAP education in Texas. So in this case, Better Living for Texas is a grant-funded partnership with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service, um, which is an agency um, under the Texas A&M University system. What programs and topics does Better Living for Texans offer? Well, the Better Living for Texans program currently offers a variety of evidence-based programs. We have seven adult series programs and six youth series programs with topics ranging from things like gardening, to physical activity, general nutrition, and food safety. And our programs span ages from early childhood and preschool to older adults and senior age. Um, and our teaching methods reflect audience needs and may include things like group sessions or one-on-one -on -one sessions. Um, we can also do single education lessons, cooking demonstrations, recipe sampling, and sometimes even garden or grocery store tours. So um, what we're aiming for is we want all of our participants to be able to take home what they learn in our sessions in order to benefit their own health and their families' lives by establishing healthier eating habits and becoming more physically active. In Nueces County, we have two Berlin for Texans. It's Michelle Daynert and Daisy Castillo. If you would like more information, visit our website. Thank you, Brenda, for joining us today and for this great information. Thank you for having me. And I just want to let everybody know if they want more information about the Better Living for Texans program and the great work we do here in Texas, they can go to blt.tamu.edu, which is our official state website.
with Jonathan Warner, Alligator Program Leader with Texas Parks and Wildlife. Welcome back, John. Great to have you here with us today. Thanks. Great to be here, Norma. Thank you. Um, I'm learning a lot today about alligators, but I do want to ask you, what should us as the general public know about alligators if, you know, if that we do encounter them or just just for safety issues? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and, and certainly an important one. Um, as Texas continues to grow in population, uh, we're continuing to see more uh, human alligator interaction. So it's, it's very important to know what to do and what not to do when it comes to alligators. Um, First thing, especially if you haven't seen one before or new to the state, um, just enjoy the sighting. First off, like I said, they're just uh, very unique animals um, that have been on the Texas landscape for millions and millions of years. A uh, very important part of our, our aquatic ecosystems here. Uh, that said, they are apex predators and um, are sometimes portrayed as as uh, in the media or other outlets as dangerous or stalking people. and. In reality, the opposite is actually true. Like like most wild animals, um, they're very skittish around people. They're very docile. Um, uh, they don't want to be around you uh, at all. And so uh, like snakes and turtles, a lot of other things, chances are you're taking a walk and you've walked right past one or, or you know, swam off or slithered off uh, before you ever even got a chance to see it. Um, that said, you know, because they are a, a big predator, it's important um, not to feed or harass them. Uh, it's against the law in Texas to do that. Uh, the number one um, way that we run into trouble when it comes to alligators and human safety is when they've been fed illegally. Uh, they begin to view the the person or the source that's feeding them um, as that's my meal ticket now. Instead, it's a, they lose that natural fear and that natural apprehension of people. Um, and so that's the number one thing is is not to approach them, not to feed them, not to harass them. Um, normally, you know, if you're just fishing off the dock or you're driving by a canal, um, it's probably swimming away from you uh, before you even had a chance to see it. Uh, but it is important not to corner them. Um, if you by chance see a mother on or near a nest, never approach a uh, a nesting mother um, as they can they can be aggressive and defensive their nest. Of course, they can. Hey, I, just out of my own curiosity, uh, how large can alligators get in Texas? Great question. Yeah, so they, um, um, at the extreme end for males, they can approach 15 feet. Uh, anything over 14 and a half feet is extremely rare. Uh, but every year in Texas, we do have a, a couple 14 foot two, 14 foot three, that ballpark that are harvested. Uh, that's on the extreme end of things. Uh, an animal that big can uh, approach one ton in weight. Um, so obviously, a, a an animal that size is um, certainly something to be respected, and, and just the ultimate survivor to um, to to make it that big and that old. Uh, mortality on on hatching alligators on juvenile alligators is incredibly high. So just to make it to an adulthood is already a, a big feat if you're an alligator. Um, females, it's very rare for them to get over nine foot in length, but occasionally we do see them um, a little bit bigger than that, but certainly nowhere near as, as big or as long as the males. There's a couple various reasons for that. Um, big part of it is as, as females reach adulthood, they start to invest their uh, energetic resources into embryo development and egg laying and those things. Um, 
but uh, uh, again, can still attain pretty impressive sizes of, of nine feet or even a bit longer, and certainly a couple hundred pounds at that at that size. Wow! And and are they long lived? Uh, do they have a long long lifespan? They, it depends what your your frame of reference is. You know, we get folks all the time that. Um, and certainly don't blame anybody for this, but there's a there's a perception that they're hundreds and hundreds of years old. If you see a ten foot alligator, and, and every seems every once in a while a story will pop up, and oh, we found bullets from the Civil War inside this guy's stomach, and um, yeah, unfortunately that's that's uh, not true. But uh, they in 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 the wild, um, a sixty or seventy year old alligator uh, is pretty ancient. Uh, pretty rare for them to uh, attain that many decades in the wild. I, I believe in zoos, occasionally they've almost reached 100 years in age, but that would certainly be on the uh, extreme extreme end of things. Uh, crocodiles, on the other hand, can, can live a bit longer, but uh, 60, 65, kind of retirement age for people, that's uh, uh, that's getting up there for an alligator in the wild too. So, And that's when you see more of those larger in size 14 feet like you were mentioning when they're a little bit older like that yes ma'am yes ma'am wow well it's it's good that texas parks and wildlife stepped in uh when they were being threatened and and took care of that i'm glad to hear that they're rebounded so uh can you tell us tell us a little bit about the role of water in alligator populations yes so as a semi-aquatic animal that's actually mostly aquatic for most of the time probably they um uh, water is a critical uh habitat resource for alligators uh throughout every stage of their life cycle um they need a uh continual source of fresh water to drink from um, although it can go, as I mentioned, several days in, in brackish or saltier conditions, but we'll need to return to freshwater um, relatively soon. Um, mother alligators that, that build um, nests, say down here in our coastal marsh, which are sometimes very impressive nests uh, up to six or seven feet tall of just dead vegetation, um, they need water nearby for drinking, but also for nursery areas for their babies. Uh, when the babies hatch, um, they primarily do most of their foraging, most of their feeding um, in fresh water. So again, critical to uh, to that aspect of their biology. Um, alligators mate primarily in the water, usually in deeper water, and so that's a, a necessary component in the in the late spring and early summer um, when they're headed into the mating season. Um, like I said, primarily for almost everything they do, um, they need water. Uh, that said. If they if they need to if they want to, um, they can travel pretty impressive distances overland. Uh, usually moving from one water body to another water body, um, but can can travel dozens and dozens of miles um, to get from point A to point B if they need to. Uh, but again, it all, all usually is um, comes back to uh, what water what water resource they need at that time. Um, what they need to get out of it so very impressive so we've got a couple more questions here and we uh, appreciate you so much being here this morning and uh, i know the public's going to find this really fascinating so no thanks for having me on so are alligators very vocal they are uh especially during the mating season um again going back to perceptions and, and misconceptions um you know alligators are actually incredibly spectacularly social animals 
which is not something that that maybe most folks equate with with a reptile or or an ectothermic animal. Um, but the males and females both have a wide array of vocalizations that they will employ, uh, primarily during the mating season. Uh, the males will bellow um, very loudly um, in in search of mates. Um, um, but yeah, in late spring, early summer, the the males and females will will vocalize with each other um, extensively. Uh, one interesting thing: the the males that uh, the the bellowing that goes along with what we call a mating dance, where they will um, when they uh, exhale uh, air will will send vibrations through the water, uh, which is also another form of of communication between males and females. But they uh, they will bellow yeah, very deeply, very loudly. Um, in the key of B flat, actually. So the alligators have been known to uh, respond to um, tubas and uh, airplanes flying overhead. Uh, I've got a, a friend in East Texas that ha- has got a, a small dam on his property. And, and every spring when he's out there with the backhoe doing work, the, the alligator uh, does his thing and, and growls and comes after the backhoe because he just recognizes that frequency. So, um, yeah, That's very inquisitive. Really yeah, it is. It's it's a very interesting trait, but yeah, something that that maybe some folks don't know is yeah, they're they're very social, can be very vocal, uh, also incredibly good parents. The the mothers will uh, stay with the babies um, usually for around a year, uh, sometimes up to two years, and protect them. The, the hatchlings will vocalize to the mother within the egg, telling her that it's time for hey, get over here and, and get us out of here. Um, they also have a distress call that in the marsh, if there's a predator nearby, they don't like something, they'll do their, their squeaking and their squawking, and, and that's that's their cue for the mother to come over and protect them. So very vocal, very social animals. Well, I'm, I'm just impressed that they're on key. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that is really interesting. Um, so let me ask you, uh, do alligators sleep or hibernate? So um, they do sleep, pro- probably not in the conventional way that we think of, of humans or other mammals sleeping, but, um, you know, middle of summer or, or going into fall, they haul up on a, on a nice sunny sandbank and, and uh, will go into a, a form of sleep where they kind of doze off there. Um, they don't hibernate in the sense that mammals hibernate. Um there's some controversy and, 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 and conversation about it still among scientists, but, but generally uh, alligators and other ectothermic animals will, will go into uh, what's known as brumation, um, very similar to the mammalian equivalent of hibernation. And basically that allows them to slow their metabolism to, uh, to an extent um, where they're uh, saving their resources and can, can ride out uh, harsher conditions. And so, uh, again, like we saw with, with, uh, uh, with Yuri last year and all of that extreme weather we had, in those, in those instances, they will go into that, that form of torpor, if you will, and, and pretty much shut down. Um, they'll also, uh, in winter, uh, in, in northern states or, or uh, colder uh, reaches of their range in the country, will dig burrows, uh, where they'll go in for the winter and, and basically kind of do their thing and, and overwinter there, um, similar to other animals that use dens and things like that. Uh, it's certainly uh, um, an observed and, and common behavior in alligators. So definitely more active at one time versus another time throughout the year. 
Yeah, no, normally in, in the winter months, um, especially during periods of sustained cold, uh, they're unable to feed under those conditions, and so they're they're uh, become very inactive during the winter months, like many many other reptiles do. Makes makes total sense. John, this has been great information, and we are so appreciative um, for all of the, you've shared with us this morning. So um, let's leave this morning with an update from Horticulture, and thank you for joining us, and have a great day. Hey, great to be on with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Horticulture and Natural Resources Update. I'm Kevin Gibbs, Horticulture Extension Agent with Texas A&M AgriLife. Today we're getting updates from two of our volunteer groups. We'll hear from Master Gardener shortly, but first let's get an update with B.B. Dalrymple, the president of the South Texas Master Naturals. Welcome, B.B. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. You're very welcome. Hey, B.B., the South Texas chapter is always super busy. We're very excited to hear what you've been up to. Can you give us an update on chapter activities? Yes, I would love to. So we're really excited to finally be restarting our uh, outreach activities after COVID and uh, our volunteers are assisting with field trips again, especially at um, Oso Bay Wetlands Preserve and the Nueces Delta Preserve. So it's fun to get out there and uh, connect with the kids and get them connected to nature. The other uh, a big thing this month was last weekend, the uh, Texas Master Naturalists had their annual meeting in Dallas, and four of us uh, got to be there in person. Six attended virtually. For the first time, this was a hybrid meeting, and two of our chapter men uh, members were presenters. Now, a lot of the other presenters were from uh, Texas A&M AgriLife and Texas Parks and Wildlife, and it was a great learning experience, and we came back uh, reinvigorated and excited. Sounds fun. It was a lot of fun, and I would also like to mention another thing we're excited about is that the Junior Master Naturalist program at Flower Bluff Intermediate is restarting since COVID, and over 60 kids have signed up, and today is the first day that they are meeting, and some of the kids have already started working in the nature garden uh, adjacent to the school, and that is really an amazing garden that features a lot of native plants, and it draws countless pollinators and other insects that thrive on native plants. I'm, I'm always amazed at all the things that, that you guys are involved in. It's a, a, truly a, a blessing to have such wonderful volunteers. So I know you're also knee deep in intern training. Um, tell us a little bit about that and how can the public become a master naturalist if they'd like to do that, BB? Okay, so we have training every fall. It usually starts uh, in August and concludes in December, and it involves uh, 40 hours of initial training, uh, volunteer time, and advanced training. And this year we have um, about uh, 23 uh, um, trainees going through uh, the program. Some have already certified, and I believe most of them will be certified uh, by December. And anybody who is interested in um, doing the training and becoming part of our chapter can check out uh, the state website 
and uh, go through the process, the application process on the website. Well, that's all terrific. Uh, again, we, we thank you for coming and giving us these updates today. I know there's a lot more that you could probably talk about, but uh, we're just about out of time. So thank you for joining us, Bibi. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Kevin. <laughs> You're very welcome. And now please welcome Gloria Van Zandt, member at large with Nueces Master Gardeners. Hi, Gloria. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Oh, we're doing well. And I hear you guys just had a huge plant sale. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, we had a plant sale in October. Uh, this is an annual fundraiser for Nueces Master Gardeners. And uh, the monies that we use go to fund our educational programs. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, what about the next plant sale? Uh, what if people want to attend that? How do they find out about that? Uh, the plant sale for this next year is going to be March the 5th. We are moving it up to coincide with a better planting season. And uh, people can learn about it through social media. We're going to try to push it a little bit more on our PR and then uh, also through our webpage. It'll be posted on our webpage. Oh, that's great. Mastergardener.org. That's great. And what kinds of plants can people expect to find? Uh, the types of plants that we had this year lean more towards a lot of tropicals, but you also have succulents. Uh, you have uh, we had some uh, we had some shrubs. We had a few uh, fruit trees as well that are available, and uh, th there's there's a huge variety. Well, that's terrific. You know, you might find some folks that are actually interested in the Master Gardener program. How how would somebody go about finding out about the Master Gardener program? I would go to our webpage, noasismastergardener.org. We have uploaded the application there, and we have also directed them to read the membership policy and procedure that Noasis Master Gardener has. And I really do encourage people to read that in its entirety because it's not like just joining an organization. There are some commitments that need to be met to become a certified master gardener and so it's important to know what you're getting into before you jump in well that's all great information and, and I, i'm sure people will look into that i, I want to thank you for joining us today uh, for the update on horticulture and oasis master gardeners and and uh, as always we hope that you have a great day thank you you do the same been listening to In the Know with Nueces County Extension. Thank you for spending a little time with us today and we hope that you join us again soon. You can catch us on Spotify, Google Podcast, or by going to our website nueces.agrilife.org. While there you can also take a look at upcoming Texas A&M AgriLife events. Again, thanks and have a great day.